Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Roy Fisher as he continues our series on grief. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hello there, Eastlake. Super excited to have this opportunity. Uh, My name is Roy Fisher, and I'm honored to be able to speak with you and grateful for the opportunity to share my experience. As I was getting ready for this, I watched a number of videos online uh, and I saw some folks that I haven't seen in a little while. And so to those of you whose lives have intersected with mine in the past, I say hello and I hope that you're well. So each time I get the opportunity to speak, uh, I wrestle with where and how to start. Uh, And obviously with the pandemic, it makes it just that much more challenging. I would really love to be across from you um, sharing the same space, but I always keep coming back to the power of stories, right? And there's this quote that I use to help ground me. And I'm going to give a few quotes throughout this because, again, it keeps me from going all over the place, but also gives you an idea, uh, I think, of where I'm coming from and hopefully make it a little clearer. And the, this specific quote was from uh, Audre Lorde. And what she said was, I've come to believe over and over again that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal, and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood, right? That the importance is getting the information out there and how it lands or the pain it might even cause to me is less important than actually saying it. Um, Because specifically around stories, stories are super important in that they they allow us to, to share information with others, Uh, We get the opportunity to express ourselves through our stories, those stories that are told by great speakers, and I don't consider myself one of those. Great speakers encourage us to transform the world around us, but ultimately what stories do is they connect us with each other. So again, think about it. The really, really good stories, whether they're told through how an actor performs them or illustrated in a really good book that you've read. Those narratives draw us in and we become part of the scene. So today, uh, the story that I'm going to tell is about the relationship between grief and generational trauma, right? So continuing on this uh, series about grief, but I'm going to specifically focus on the impact of racialized trauma. So let me tell you a little bit about myself, right? Uh, To give a little bit more context. I'm a Northwest kid. I was born in Seattle, raised in Renton, uh, currently live in Tukwila. I've been fortunate enough to travel a lot, uh, but always knew I would be back here. I've been married for uh, 11 years, going on 12, and I'm the non-biological parent of two adult kids. Uh, And I specifically say non-biological as opposed to step. 
there's nothing step about what I do, right? I'm a father, right? I, we just don't share any DNA. In my full-time job, I work as a licensed marriage and family therapist. And uh, for those of you who care about the initials after a therapist's name, uh, marriage and family therapy or MFT is not solely about marriage. It's like throughout my career, I've worked with individuals, I've worked with kids, uh, and probably just about any family structure you can imagine. It's MFTs believe that a family's pattern of behavior influences the individual and therefore may need to be part of the treatment plan. In MFT, the identified patient isn't just the person, even if only a single person is interviewed. What's really important is the set of relationships in which the person is embedded. So simply stated, like MFT focuses on the importance of relationships on our lives. So quote number two. <laughs> Right. There's a, an old wisdom saying that goes, um, you think that because you understand one, you will also comprehend two because one and one makes two. But to truly understand two, you must first comprehend and. Right? Because we don't live in isolation. MFT explores the interactions we have in the relation to our well-being. Because we exist in relation to each other. I'm a husband because of the relationship I have with my wife. I'm a father because of the relationship between my children and I. I ask people to consider what are the relationships that are most important to them. And in those relationships, how might you be connected? A, a big focus of my work is the exploration of how our cultural programming informs our experiences of the world. And what do those relationships, what do they look like? So when I use the word culture, I'm referring to it more as this broad concept uh, that culture is a learned set of beliefs, tra traditions, principles, and guides for individual and collective behaviors that members of a particular group commonly share with each other. Culture can appear on both this conscious and less conscious level that organizes our perceptions and understanding of the world in some really subtle ways. And while I'm going to be centering race today, culture is more than race and ethnicity. It includes gender identity and expression. It includes geographical location, birth order, education, sexual orientation, religious beliefs. It's like I can keep going with some expressions of culture. So for example, life is a gift. Love is the point. Is a powerful expression of the culture of Lee Lake. So I wasn't necessarily raised with a, um, an explicit racialized identity. It's like I've always known I was Black and probably more importantly what being Black means in the United States. Um, when I was younger, I would hear that I was smart, that I was beautiful, and I was capable of achieving anything I put my mind to. My father passed away several years ago, but if you had a chance to talk to my mom and her son, she might even go as far to say that her babies are perfect. Uh, and now I'm not gonna argue with my mom, right? She and my, my dad did a really good job, I think, in how she raised, how they raised me and my brothers. But when I was in grad school, uh, I, I had the opportunity, you know, you do a lot of reflecting in, in grad school to be a therapist. And so I, I wanted to ask her why she was so, adamant in the messaging to my brothers and I. 
And what she told me was really powerful and it stuck with me. And uh, what she said was she wanted to make sure that when the world told us we were less than, that we would still have enough. And so what I've come to understand is that the decisions my parents were making were ultimately based in grief. It's like grief can be defined as this keen mental suffering or distress over affliction of loss, sharp sorrow, or painful regret. It's my belief that many people of color, especially multi-generational African-Americans are constantly in a state of grief because of the generational trauma experienced. And so when I say multi-generational African-Americans, here's what I mean. I'm referring to those African-Americans who can trace their ancestors' arrival to the United States back to slavery. You see, there's this difference between the experiences of those who immigrate to this country and those experiences of multi-generational African-Americans. Immigrants see the United States as the land of opportunity. Multi-generational African-Americans and indigenous people of the United States don't share that same narrative. Their stories consist of colonization, slavery, and violence. And this experience contributes to the collective mental suffering and distress due to the consistent messaging of being less than. For multi-generational African-Americans, there's an ongoing sorrow associated with the legacy of chattel slavery. So for my parents, they knew the world their children would be living in and were effectively grieving the loss of their babies. Like for them, I know my parents' story. I know what it was like for my father to grow up in the, in the Seattle area in like the late 50s, early 60s. Like he told me his own story and history of navigating a social climate. I also know what my mother went through in Panama, that's where she's from. And I know what it was like for her in the United States to be a woman of color working as a construction worker. Their past experiences clearly played a part in the way they chose to parent my brothers and I. So to really understand this kind of grief, we also need to understand the relationship to trauma. Now, there's no stages of grief. There's no singular event when we're talking about generational trauma that needs to be processed because this level of grief is ongoing and passed between family members over many generations. So I've said trauma a lot and what is, what is trauma? What about trauma? And I've, I've read a bunch of definitions, but the one that hits closest home to me in terms of this specific talk is that trauma is an injury that's caused by an outside, usually violent force, event, or experience. And we can experience this injury physically, emotionally, psychologically, and or spiritually. Traumas can upset our equilibrium and, and our sense of our well-being. If the trauma is severe enough, it can distort our attitudes and belief. So if one traumatic experience can result in these distorted attitudes, dysfunctional behavior, and ultimately unwanted consequences, this pattern is magnified exponentially when a person repeatedly experiences severe trauma. And it is much, much worse when the traumas are caused by human beings. The slave experience was one of continual violent attacks on the body, mind, and spirit. So our bodies have a, a very specific reaction to trauma. So imagine an alarm system goes off. So our heart rate increases, blood pressure rises, 
uh, our muscles contract, breathing speeds up, non-critical information is tuned out. Our prefrontal cortex, which controls our ability to think critically, shuts off. Uh, and cortisol, which is our stress hormone, is released. Uh, the purpose of all this activity is ultimately for protection. It becomes the activation of our fight, flight, or freeze response. And once the traumatic event is over, cortisol levels naturally uh, decrease. But what happens if a person is experiencing chronic stress? Those cortisol levels, they stay heightened, and this has an adverse effect on our bodies. Uh, our ability to accurately perceive a threat is also impacted. So throughout my experience, I know that when I talk about this, when I center race in this way, many times I'll get some pushback because the topic can be a little triggering to folks. Uh, so let me reiterate, right? let me repeat myself. I'm a therapist. I step into this space with the goal of connection, not to bash white people. Uh, I freely take shots at whiteness though, but not specifically white people. My real goal is to expand how we conceptualize and connect the unique expressions and experiences of racialized grief and trauma. 180 years of the Middle Passage. 246 years of slavery, rape, and abuse. 100 years of a fiction of freedom. The history of black codes, convict leasing, Jim Crow, all supported by our national institutions. Lynching, medical experimentation, redlining, significant unequal treatment in almost every aspect of society. Brutality at the hands of those charged with protecting and serving. It's not hard to imagine the long-term impact of this ongoing trauma on the bodies of people that are tied to this history. Hey Eastlake, Peter here. Thanks so much for tuning in to watch this message. I wanted to do just a quick interruption to say thank you to so many of you who are making regular contributions to Eastlake. Eastlake is a nonprofit and everything that we do is because of a community of consistent and generous people who really believe in this place and want to see it continue. So uh, if you're a part of that community, thank you for how you make this place go. If you are tuning in regularly and are part of this community, but you haven't yet um, jumped in to making a financial contribution, we would encourage you to do that and encourage you to go to eastlakecc.com to help support Eastlake as a community and continue to make these messages possible. Thanks so much for uh, letting me interrupt your message. Let's jump back in. So my father used to drive this big gold 1976 Cadillac Eldorado. Man, that thing was like a boat going down the road. It was so smooth. Uh, and he would often tell me his own stories of how he was treated by the police. And this was like in the you know, late 80s, early 90s. Um, the irony of this story is that my father was a police officer. My dad was the first African-American to retire after serving 25 years in the Washington State Patrol. My godfather and many of the other black men that I grew up with and around were the badges of various law enforcement organizations. The connection to grief comes from the fact that each of them had to talk with their black children, especially their black boys, how to interact with the police. It's like this had to create a certain amount of mental suffering, right? 
So in psychological terms, what I'm talking about is cognitive dissonance. And for those of you who aren't clinicians, cognitive dissonance is used to describe the mental discomfort that results from holding two conflicting beliefs, values, or attitudes. It's like my father was deeply committed to his career in law enforcement, and he was raising three black males knowing the spaces they would occupy. So according to cognitive dissonance theory, in order to reduce this dissonance, the person experiencing the discomfort, they alter their beliefs or behaviors to reduce the discomfort and restore balance. For my father's choice was to have the talk with his boys, regardless of what he did for a living. But that choice still had to come at a cost though, right? It's difficult not to believe that having to protect your children from someone who shared your uniform wasn't traumatic. So until I started this focus on trauma, I didn't know that it came from the Greek word for wound. And if we were to consider racially based trauma as a wound, how might that affect the way we think about it? Um, so there's, I guess this would be quote number three, right? There's this powerful Malcolm X quote uh, that I think speaks directly to this. And what he said was, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and you pull it out six inches, that's not progress. It's like if you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress comes from healing the blow, healing the wound that the blow made. They haven't begun to pull the knife out. They won't even admit the knife is there. So if we conceptualize this as a wound, what we do is we give ourselves the opportunity to address it differently. So at its core, uh, this is about addressing the pain of this wound and how historical trauma impacts all of us. This is about finding the and. Because even if you don't identify as a person of color, there's still plenty of room for personal reflection. Like As a clinician, I know that there are many groups who understand deeply the relationship between trauma and grief. You know, there isn't an Olympic event where oppressed groups compete to win a gold medal for how oppressed they've been. There's more than enough pain in this world to go around. And I believe in order for us to really engage in this thought exercise and step into this conversation, we need to develop a deep, deep understanding of our racialized history and its relationship to grief and trauma. And I get it that this is a tough, tough conversation and it's pretty nuanced. Uh, and ultimately, I kind of feel for white people because y'all can't win. It's like if you're white, you're often assumed to be racist right off the jump. If you're lucky, the assumption is that you're just ignorant of how tough it is for people of color. And at best, you're seen as an ally. But you know what? You still can't be fully trusted because who knows what you say when people of color aren't around. Like so in the other corner, what you end up with is you have people of color who are hurt and upset, but have to be careful about how they express their emotions because of the risk that white people will become afraid. Right. You get threatened because when white people are afraid. Violence directed at people of color tends to increase. So again, back to what I said, I'm from the Northwest. This is home. And we may not be the South, but we have our own legacy with this. Back in 2015, King County published data examining the social determinants of health. And on the surface, King County is a great place to live, to work, and to play. So in comparison to many other parts of the country, uh, King County residents are better educated, have better health, uh, experience lower unemployment, 
live longer. But if you dive deeper into these numbers, you'll see something different that specific racial groups experience King County much differently. And this kind of uh, disparity isn't just in King County. These results are found all over the United States, that there are multiple studies that show that zip codes are strong predictors of overall health. So we continue to deal with the legacy of housing covenants that restrict access for undesirables. The question that you might be asking is, what the heck does this have to do with trauma and grief? So bear with me. Race and place can predict where people have the opportunity to thrive. The creation of neighborhoods was determined by ways to keep those that were deemed undesirable out. Right, so undesirable sometimes meant Jewish, it sometimes meant people of Asian descent, but undesirable always meant Black. So if opportunity, health, and wellness is tied to location, and location is determined by policies and or laws, and these policies and laws were based on racial prejudice, it's reasonable to consider racism as a significant contributing factor to the grief and loss experienced by communities of color tied to these neighborhoods. See, if you look at it this way, racism is a generational trauma, right? Racism is a chronic life stressor. We know from all the things that we're understanding about brain science is that experiencing trauma changes our brain's chemistry. That trauma contributes to a social, emotional, and cognitive impairments. That when we're traumatized, we develop coping strategies that are ultimately problematic. Um, there are severe and persistent health and social problems. And trauma impacts our ability to form solid relationships. I can remember the trauma of my first experience with racism. And I didn't know what racism meant as a word, but I remember vividly the first time I had real racial fear. Uh, I was at Point Defiance Park and I had to be about eight or nine years old because my parents were still together and they divorced when I was 10. Um, I was walking around the park, like kids do, right? And, and this group of white guys in a truck rolled past me and, and they yelled out watermelon. Uh, and I didn't understand the watermelon comment because I wasn't eating watermelon. But I knew deep down that this was a threat of some kind. It's like, how did my body know I was supposed to be afraid? And how did I know that it was somehow related to my racial identity? Now, I'm not a scientist, but I do try to read a lot because it helps me make sense of the world around me. And, and so epigenetics is the study of heritable changes in our gene expression that do not involve changes to the underlying DNA sequence. And so according to epigenetics, tiny tags are added to or removed from our DNA in response to changes in the environment in which we are living. And so these tags turn our genes on and off. Think about it like a light switch. And it offers a way of adapting to changing conditions without inflicting a more permanent shift in our genomes. So the implications of this are pretty significant because what it means is that perhaps experiences during our lifetime, especially the traumatic ones, would have some very real impact for generations to come. So according to epigenetics, my physiological response to hearing watermelon could be explained by some historical trauma in my family that was passed along at the cellular level. 
that the choices made by my parents were informed by something deep, deep inside. I mentioned MFT earlier and our focus on relationships. And since we exist in relationship to others, this generational trauma and grief is experienced in the relationships between different racial groups. So it'd be easy and kind of short-sighted to blame um, our current political climate uh, or this summer, right, for this dynamic, but it existed way before 2016. We must all play a part in dismantling the system that contributes to this generational trauma and grief. This is our collective wound. So healing from this historical trauma is emotional, physical, psychological, and spiritual process for everybody involved, not just people of color. So I wonder at this point if many of you might be thinking, dang, this is heavy. Where's the hope? And I can understand where you would think that, but I have plenty of hope because part of the healing process is allowing space to tell our stories. In my clinical work, I am intimately aware of the pain in the world. It's like I've sat with people as they process their trauma and grief. Again, remember stories are about connecting with others. And I've also been witness to incredible resilience as people lean into the healing power of their unique stories. So as I, as I start to kind of wrap up and come to a close, right? It's like, how do we treat wounds? And I think about trauma, I think about grief, it's a wound. How do we treat wounds? Uh, depending on the age of the wounded, like we might kiss their boo-boo and tell them that we're gonna, they're going to be okay and that we're sorry that they're hurting. Uh, depending on the significance of the injury, we'll clean and dress the area. And that once we're comfortable that it's been cared for, we'll bandage and wait for it to heal. Right? You think about healing from significant wounds, broken bones, things like that, incredibly painful. And those kinds of wounds typically always leave a scar. Grief is the same way. Incredibly painful, oftentimes leaves a scar. Part of this healing process, again, is allowing space for everybody to tell their stories. Because grief is very personal and everyone has to heal in their own way, in their own time. There is no timetable with grief and there is no magic point on some calendar in space that says when grief will be over. Generational grief takes considerable time to be able to work through because to fully grieve the historical trauma, this takes a certain level of intentionality because new traumas can bring the unrecognized and unexpected and unexpressed grief to the surface. It is important to understand uh, that during these times, we need support to be able to work our way through this grief. So one of my, one of my mentors, uh, he explored how to heal from racialized trauma and he had these six steps. Step one, uh, it's about affirmation and acknowledgement that it is important to convey a general understanding and acceptance that race is a critical organizing principle in our society. We have to create space for conversations about race, step two. An effort is made to identify race as a significant variable and encourage open and candid dialogue about race and the experiences associated with it. Step three, racialized storytelling, right? So we invite people to share their personal stories of their racial experiences. 
What this does is it helps us develop some critical thinking about how these experiences might be traumatizing. We need to validate that step four. We need to provide confirmation of people's worldview and their worth as a human being. Step five, naming. We need to give words to race-based experiences, especially naming the underlying pain. Step six is we need to rechannel the rage. Right? The goal is not to eliminate rage because that would be impossible, but instead to increase awareness, gain control of it, and ultimately redirect it. Because wounds that are left untreated become infected. Right? Grief unacknowledged can turn inward and impact our relationships, including our relationships with ourselves. Right? We become infected. Again, I go back to where I started. Eastlake, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to my story. And what I invite each of you to do is to continue to examine and explore how trauma and grief are expressed in your world and in the world of those around you. It is through this process that we are more likely to be able to empathize with the experiences of others. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.